is, you know, people say, I am entitled to any belief, any thought, I can say anything I want. And that's mis... I mean, you can, obviously, but that's misguided, I think. I think it's very misguided. And we are not open-minded, okay? Which is really what you have to be. You're not open-minded. You've gone in with a whole set of conscious and sometimes subconscious things that are influencing how you are thinking in this minute about something. And wisdom to me is, is related to the ability to see that process, not engage in it, recognize it happens, but to keep going and not be distracted by it. Wisdom is very difficult to achieve. We have to fight against our instincts for the status quo to be so self-aware and then to confirm or to deny our pre-existing ideas. We've heard from other guests this month about the delicate dance between good and bad ideas, and this episode continues that exploration. In this episode, we will consider how to walk the tightrope that is strung between critical thinking and open-mindedness, and how to avoid falling into the depths of misguided thinking. Our guest in this final episode of the series on critical thinking is Howard Rankin. Howard is an inspirational educator on the subject of mind-body medicine, spirituality, neuropsychology, cognitive function, personal change, and transformation. He's written for dozens of internationally recognized news outlets and has been a regular guest on television shows, including The View. Yeah, and Howard recognizes that much of the mental rigor that is required for this kind of thinking it came to a large degree in drafting them from his own experiences in his own life, maybe what we might call me-search, but it was really helpful. Yeah, so much of our insights often come from those personal or life experiences. And Tim, we've seen this with a lot of our guests, haven't we? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So moving on. So if if you're enjoying this series, please take a moment to give us a quick rating or a two-sentence review. Maybe today could be the very first review that you've ever written, and we want to encourage you to join dozens, if not tens of dozens more, uh, have written <laughs> reviews just like that. It's easy. It really is easy. You can just scroll down on your Apple. If you're listening on Apple, scroll down to the bottom, and there's a way of doing that. So just take a look at your phone, figure out how you do it with your pod listening service and just leave us two quick sentences is all you need. You'll be adding fuel to the algorithm that podcast players use to bring behavioral groups to others just like you who are curious about why we do what we do. While you're at it, you should check out our website to sign up for our newsletter or to take advantage of the special discount that we have for listeners for our leading human workbook. So this discount is unique for listeners only and it's grooves g-r-o-o-v-e-s right kurt you add that in the promotional component and you get a discount yeah you don't want to miss out on a chance to get an unbelievable deal on an unbelievably relevant guide to managing your way through this chaotic times that we're in and with that welcome to behavior grooves the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. Now, right now, I want to encourage you to find a nice place to reflect, sit back with a fresh squeeze of critical thinking, and listen to our conversation with Howard Rankin. Howard Rankin, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much, guys, for uh, having me on your show. I've been looking forward to this for some time. Oh, well, we are excited to have you. And as usual, we start with our not-so-fast speed round. Here we go. <laughs> uh, I'll take the first question, Tim. So do you prefer coffee or tea, Howard? Oh, that's a tricky one. A uh, tricky one? It's, 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 it's coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. Coffee? coffee. Okay. Yeah. What was the decision there? You're, you were hemming and hawing. As a Brit yes. who you know, grew up and you know, spent the first part of my adult life in Britain, it would have been tea. Mm. But having spent, you know, 30 plus years in the U.S., it switched to coffee. Mm. Wow. Social norms taking over, huh? Yeah. Holy yeah. cow. Interesting. Uh, we talked to someone who said that they, they drink coffee when they're in Europe and when they're in Australia, they drink tea. Was Do I have that right, Kurt? Wasn't it? I mean, there's like they spend part of their time and it's like because in, in you know, Australia, 
I thought it was, well, there was another guest, maybe we're talking different guests, but it was tea in England and then flat white coffee in Australia. That oh, was, that was, yeah. okay. I Thank you for correcting me. I, that was, <laughs> I, I totally got that wrong. Okay, but we're moving through the speed round. Which, uh, at at the, the snail's pace, we almost always do. Uh, Howard, would you prefer to vacation with a fixed itinerary or with no itinerary at all? No itinerary at all. Do you vacation that way now? Do you just get on a plane and choose a destination and then come what may? Somewhat, yes, yes. When I, uh, the biggest thing that I ever did uh, when I was in the UK was took a trip to India. Oh. And uh, all I had was the flight, the ticket out to arrive in South India, and that was it. Oh. And it was, I, I spent six weeks going around India just like that. It was, okay, it's time, bam, tomorrow I get on a train, you know, and go to Bangalore. And and hope there's wow. some place to stay. And yeah, and yeah <laughs> that's, I love that. I love that adventure. Okay. Uh, speed round question number three. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite athlete or your favorite musician? Athlete. Okay. And who would that be if you had the choice of any athlete? Oh, man. You ask tough questions. These are supposed to be the easy ones. <laughs> you know, I guess. If you had to, it, maybe you could pick two to come to dinner together. How about that? Okay. Uh, man. Clayton Kershaw and Joe Montana. Oh, okay. Wow. I know Joe Montana, but you're going to have to help me. Clayton Kershaw. Who, who is Pitcher that? Pitcher for the Dodgers. Oh, okay. Oh. And I've got a great story. Well, it's here. It's here. Oh, really? You want to hear yeah. it? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. So uh, when I was in my senior year of high school, oh, actually before that, as a kid, as a 10, starting when I was about 10, I had a radio in my room and I loved sports. I love sports. And one day, one evening, I picked up the American Forces Network out of Germany, broadcasting, I think it was a basketball game. Okay, And that started a massive journey for me with my interest in American sports. I've still got the book today where I wrote down, here's the latest baseball stuff. And it's, this was the early 60s. And the Dodgers were very successful, so they were on a lot. So they became my team. And this was, as I say, 60s where the communication between countries was very minimal, not like it is today. I was probably the only British kid who knew anything about baseball. <laughs> uh, fast forward, fast forward about eight years, and I've applied for a exchange student scholarship to come to the U.S. because I was a big Americophile. Mm. And in my essay that I had to write, I said, I'm a big baseball fan. I went up to the American embassy where there were four interviewers, and one guy said, oh, I see you're a baseball fan. Okay, so who do you think the best pitcher is then? Clearly thinking that I had put it in just to get oh, points. Yeah. Uh -huh. Best pitcher? Oh, oh, I said. Um, now I'm forgetting uh, who it was. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, at the time I remembered, and it was, oh, he's the best pitcher. Oh, come on, 27-9, and nine, a 1.12 ERA, 375 <laughs> strikeouts. And the guy looked at me, almost fell off his chair. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I've been interested in sports, uh, and uh, that's also what got me interested in the U.S., for, for a long time, but yeah, that was that was funny. I'm sorry, I can't remember the Cardinals pitcher. Anyway, so anyway, <laughs> you remember the the the, the surroundings? Oh yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Was it? What could it have been? Bob Gibson? Yes, it was Bob Gibson. Thank you. Well oh done. My gosh, Tim. Well done. Where did well you done. pull that out of? You were St. Louis boy. Yes, you know. Bob Gibson, twenty-seven and nine, and one point one two ERA, three hundred seventy-three strikeouts. Who do you think the best pitcher is? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, and incidentally, there was a program that was mostly a year program, but in the UK there was a small program about a dozen kids that went from December to July because if they won, were taking the Oxford Cambridge exams, which were in the fall. Mm. Um, and time was passing, and I thought, nah, I, I, you know, they've not found a place for me. 
And then I get a call to say, yeah, you're going. Where am I going? Los Angeles. Oh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Could it have been any better? Unbelievable. Oh. Unbelievable. Yeah, really cool. And and I, I'm hoping that you did get to see some baseball. Of course. Yeah, actually, that was a question that one of these four people, a woman said, okay, well, would you rather go to a Dodgers game or go out on a date? <gasps> wow. Ooh, but I was pretty sharp. I didn't miss a beat. I said, look, if it's the last few days and I haven't been to a Dodgers game, that's where I'm, I'm going to the game. But other than that, a date every time. <laughs> <laughs> Good call. Good call. Yes, okay. I think so. <laughs> we are inching closer to the end of our speed round. Time's almost up, right? <laughs> exactly. It's been fun. Thanks for ha- thanks for being a guest. Um, <laughs> no, um, so, is there a difference between our reality and the reality? Absolutely. Okay. So, one of the problems really comes with the use of the term reality. Okay, so we definitely all have different experiences, we all have different perceptions, but reality, real the word means a agreement about um, whether something you know exists or doesn't or is you know what the nature of it is. And so because it real the, the term reality is about agreement, you can't have an individual reality, even though it may seem that way, We certainly can have individual perceptions, experiences, and we all do that. But I don't like the word, my personal reality. I think it's a misuse of the word. And then there are all sorts of conceptual issues that then creep in after that. Well, and you talk a little bit about cognitive relativism, right? This Mm -hmm. idea of that. Can you expand upon that and how that relates back to the sense Mm. of, of reality? Because I think that is par se to what we're talking about. Yeah, and so you know, cognitive relativism is that every you know every cognition, whether that's a perception or an idea or whatever or an issue, is somehow relative. Mm. And the problem with that is all you end up with is a, a bunch of individual perceptions, and there's never really a discussion or an agreement about what of the, which of those is actually common. So I don't, while I understand what people are trying to say, and clearly we all have individual experiences and perceptions, I personally don't like the word, you know, it's my personal reality, because reality implies there's a common aspect. Mm. And that isn't the case when you say personal reality. I hear the term less, and yet I feel like in the world of social media, the actual execution of my personal reality is getting bigger. Do you see that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. People think that, and it's also tied up, I think, sometimes with a misunderstanding of what freedom is, whether we're talking about existential freedom or political freedom, is you know people say, I am entitled to any belief, any thought, I can say anything I want. And that's Mis- I mean, you can, obviously, but that's misguided, I think. I think it's very misguided. And then it, it becomes divisive um, because we do have to recognize the enormous similarities that we share mm. with other people. And as soon as we start dividing it off that I'm so different from you, I think we run into some big problems. And we're seeing that. So part of... I think what is going on, particularly with the social media and the internet today, is this idea that I can find a a group of people who agree with whatever my opinion or perception is. If I believe that the world is flat, there are other people somewhere out there in the world who share that worldview with me, that perception. If I believe Mosquitoes are, you know, the most wonderful creature, you know, whatever that belief would be, you can find those at some point. So your point about this reality, is there an aspect of it that in the past, some of these fringe reality, and I'm not using the right words here, Mm -hmm. some of these ideas that would have normally just dissipated become more ingrained and harder to for people to 
really look at the reality? Is this, Does that make sense? Am I- yeah, no, no, absolutely. And it's really reinforced or certainly strengthened the concept of confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. And confirmation bias is, of course, you look for things that confirm your views and you ignore, discard, or attack anything that doesn't fit with your views. And I think the internet, you know, connecting so many people, and especially when the material is actually selected for you, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're channeled towards those people, definitely makes that much, 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 much more likely to find somebody and say, ah, you see, so-and-so believes that, you know, 10,000 people believe that, yeah. you know, all these mosquitoes were sent from wherever. You know, the problem with that, and it is interesting, I go back to an experience I had in elementary school where we were in a class, probably 25 kids, and we were doing spelling. Mm-hmm. And there was a word, and the teacher said, who spelt it this way? And all but two kids, including me, I might add, he said humbly, did not put their hands up. So 23 kids put their hands up. And who spelled it this way? Me and another kid. And the 23 kids said, yay. And the teacher said, well, you're all wrong. They're right. Okay. And it was a great lesson that just because a lot of people think something (laughs) doesn't make it true. Uh, And, you know, the internet simply has allowed that to take over, really. But that's a that's a natural social response, right? If if other people believe it, we look to others to validate our own beliefs. And so, wow, I get all this positive reinforcement. We have a huge group Facebook page that says, you know, mosquitoes are are actually tiny robots and mm-hmm. think here we go, whatever that would be. Those I think are difficult aspects of the common world in which we live and and overcoming that because there is a reality like you said you don't spell a word you know there's a common way of spelling a word that is larger than the subset of 23 students and there's a reality out there in the world that is larger than that 10,000 100,000 even a million people multiple millions of people when we have seven and a half eight billion people on this earth so. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You've got to put it in context, which is something that people find difficult to do. And again, that confirmation bias is just going to come in and they say, yeah, you see, I'm right. Well, you write a lot about critical thinking. And I'm wondering how how this might tie into the the challenges that we have in developing better critical thinking, not just on an individual basis, but sort of on a on a communal or mass basis as well. Yeah, I think there's a much greater need for that. And I do think that education lags seriously in practice behind what we really know would be best practices in education. So critical thinking typically in the typical education system is, oh, do a complex subject like you know science or physics, and that's how you learn critical thinking. But it's sort of indirect way. It's an indirect way. Nobody actually tells you <laughs> at least I don't think they do, unless they're really ahead of the game educationally, nobody tells you about the thinking process, right? How you have to look and analyze, take an issue, and it could be any issue, take it. How do you research that? What do you put emphasis on? So I really don't think that critical thinking is being taught. I don't think there's a course on thinking. I think you're right. What, What would you recommend? Well, in the book, for example, one of the issues we have in the area of cognition is a lot of people are very poor at numeracy. Mm. They just don't understand numbers, and they absolutely don't understand compounding, which is really critical. It's really critical to understand that, certainly for, for your financial management, but also it comes in with other things like covid like somebody say, oh, I'm not going to get a vaccine. You know, I can go, okay, I might infect two people. No. Compounding tells you, if you understand anything about it, you could impact and kill hundreds of people through one action. But people don't understand compounding. Now, so how could you teach that? I'm a big believer in teaching through experience, not just fact. So you could take a class, any class, class of kids, and say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a gift voucher, one gift voucher today, and I'm going to double it every day. And at the end of the the time you're in it, 
you can change your gift voucher in for a gift. So we'll start today. And I'm going to do uh, one group can be in for one week. So you can exchange your gift quicker. One, one group's going to be in two weeks. Okay. So the first group start out, they get one voucher first day, second year they get two, then they get four, then they get eight, then they get 16. And so at the end of that, ah, I've got 31 vouchers. But the next group end up, without boring you, with 1,072. Yeah. Now that would be an experience that would, wait a minute, if I waited a week longer, look how much I would get. And I think that's also part of the critical thinking. People don't have that skill set. They just don't know how to do it. And in some ways, it's not their fault because they have not been taught it. Yeah. Daniel Kahneman talks about we have a large number illiteracy, this idea that uh, the difference that people think between a million and a billion, uh, oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a 500 million or it's 2 billion. And they go, oh, that's not that big of a difference. 500 actually is bigger than two. So you mm -hmm. should think there. But, and I forget how, you know, the, the different, like a billion, a million seconds is seven days or something like that. And forgive me, it might be minutes versus a billion seconds is 31 years or something <laughs> along that line. And so we do have a bad numeracy aspect within most of, of, of the people today. And yeah. I think that's big, but from a critical thinking perspective. So numeracy is one aspect. What, what are some other ways that we can improve how we think critically about the world? Well, I think the key thing is to understand, and that was really the purpose of writing, I think, therefore I'm wrong, is to understand the influences on our thinking, to realize that we're going to be biased, that emotionally we might immediately jump, having a reaction and dismiss something, and we are not open-minded, okay, which is really what you have to be. You're not open-minded. You've gone in with a whole set of conscious and sometimes subconscious things that are influencing how you are thinking in this minute about something. And wisdom to me is, is related to the ability to see that process, not engage in it, recognize it happens, but to keep going and not be distracted by it. Uh, and then, so, you know, you might come across a research article and your first reaction is, oh, what a lot of nonsense. Okay, but you still read it. Still read it. Still read it. Okay. And I think that's, I think that's important. And part of it is we live in such a busy world and an attention economy where everyone's trying to get our attention. You know, who has the time to think critically? You know, uh, George Bernard Shaw, one of my favorites, said, I've made a good living for myself thinking once or twice a week. And if he means critical thinking, or he meant critical thinking, he's right. I mean, how many people actually say, you know, I'm going to sit down tonight, and I'm really going to look into this whatever it is stuff, I'm really look at the data and see what's there and find out and see different points of view. And you know, how many people do that? I mean, unless that's your job. And it's exhausting. Yeah, it is. It is. It's very tiring. Well, and again, going back to social media and various different things, I saw a meme today that somebody was saying, look, we don't say I researched this because what you did was not research. You didn't go and do a lit review. You didn't go and look at all of those references that were there, kind of do a critical approach of did this study actually prove what it did? You didn't go out and do a study. You didn't do any of that. You got a feed from the social media that you looked at. You clicked on something, you read something, and now therefore you say that now I've researched that, which is true. It's that you haven't. You have, you've read some information, but you have not researched things. And again, going back to being clear about the language that we use, that, I think, is a big piece because people haven't researched that when they they think they do. Yeah, that's exactly right. And again, that word has used has become to mean just that rather than really what it means, which is, again, a deep dive into a, a topic. Um, and again, that's a function of the, the social media environment. You know, not to mention that, of course, there are... Uh, I was talking to somebody in the crypto... Uh, field said there are at least 30 countries who have organizations associated with them trying to disseminate false information to divide the country. And I believe that. I believe that. Wow. Wow. That, it's, it's humbling, actually, just to, to think about 
how how powerful a tool information is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the new the new front lines of war in a way, isn't it? The new front line of of conflict yeah. is we don't have to kill the masses; we can convert them. We can get them singing. <laughs> we can get them singing uh, our song, which is even better. Yeah, especially when it's when it's not the song of the of the nation that they live in. Yeah, that that is amazing. You you uh, talked about reality as being a, an agreement, and I I really love this. And that that got me thinking about to what degree does truth equate to social norms? Is do social norms somehow influence what we consider to be true? And can there be truths that are different between different groups with with different social norms? For sure. Absolutely. And then the question is, what is truth? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, that's, that's actually one of the problems that we have because, again, in I think therefore I'm wrong, one of the things I point out is that facts, for the most part, are probabilities. But we think of them as 100% certain. And, of course, science is not the business of providing the ultimate truth. It is uncovering it bit by bit by bit, you know? And so you can say, well, what we know right now through research is this, but that doesn't mean that's the final word on it because there's going to be then more research. And this was the difference between the Stoics and the skeptics that when you think you've come to the answer, all it does is present more questions and then you keep digging and digging. So you never really have an answer, it continues to evolve. And that's certainly true in today's fast-moving world, uh, that what is acceptable today, you know, next year could be, oh, no, we've done so much more research on that, we understand it so much better, uh, we view it differently. But for people who don't understand that, that allows them to be skeptical, you know. Mm. You know, oh, yeah, these people were talking about climate change 20 years ago and nothing's happened since then. You know, no, but we've understood more and more and more and more and more. You know, the, the rate of information has grown exponentially. And, and again, people don't understand that. And part of that is we like certainty. We don't want uncertainty. We want to feel, hey, this is what it is, and I'm cool with that, and that's it. But unfortunately... If you really take a, a microscope to it, that's it's not as easy as that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it, it makes me think about then how do we deal with our blind spots? You know, when we have this tremendous desire and love of certainty. I, I, I'm, I'm one of those people. I love the idea of certainty. I live in a world that is ambiguous, that is somewhere between two shores most of the time. But boy, feeling like I'm certain about something is really great, even though. Intellectually, I know that I've got blind spots that might be impeding that. How, how, how do we reconcile that? Well, again, again, this sort of skeptic, stoic approach is, well, you don't know everything, but for right now, this is good enough, right? <laughs> for right now, it's good enough. We know that it's going to change over time. We don't know how, but right now, this is good enough. Yeah. And, and I think that's really where it's at, to be honest. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. You can look at some of the you, you mentioned vaccine deniers or various the, the hoax of COVID, all of that component. And you can look at some of that and some of the ways that they're doing that is look and saying, look, they said masks weren't necessary to begin with. And then they're saying masks are and then they're saying masks. And now in this idea that there should be one truth out there as opposed to we're uncovering that truth bit by bit. And that's how science works. We're learning more every day. And thus, what we believed, which was the best understanding that we had at point A, now it's point B and we've learned more. So now we should be adjusting our beliefs. But the fact is, is that we we anchor in on a belief. So, and, and you talk about that in, in, in your book. You, you said, you know, I think it was you asked the readers, you said, do you ever challenge your beliefs? And so h- how do we challenge those beliefs? What is the, is what is there any magic formula for us to be able to go in and <laughs> yeah. make that happen? <laughs> I, I don't know that there's a magic formula, but what one is trying to do 
is to recognize that what is going on in your head and your consciousness is a function of so many things that you have no idea about, but a lot of it's your past experience. You feel comfortable with it, and that's it. And part of that is to let go of that. Now, mm. I know that's, that's difficult, but this is where sort of mindfulness and meditation, particularly those practices come in that allow you to observe what is going on in your head, but not necessarily own it. Um, and for example, that can be mindfulness, for example, meditation has been used for things like stress or pain. Oh yeah, look at the stress, but don't own it. Look at the pain, yeah, it's there, but don't engage in it. And that's shown to be actually powerful because if you look at the pain, you're going to say, oh, I'm in so much pain, oh, and we know that just makes it worse, right? If you say the pain is there, but, you know, it's there, it's separate from me, that makes it massively different. And I think that's what we have to do. It goes back to Buddha, really, and a lot of those philosophers that our consciousness First of all, it's probably overrated. <laughs> um, and, and, and secondly, so much of it is sort of conditioned. We don't stop to think about it. And that we need to, because otherwise we just keep doing the same, same thing, same thing over and over, just building, you know, a pyramid of half-baked ideas for the most part. And yet it feels like that is common in our nature. That, that we see this over and over again, getting back, this, this sort of ties into this desire for certainty, our confirmation biases, right? Is there a nudge you th that we could have that could get someone to make that first step? Well, I, I think the first step is awareness of the process. The first step is always awareness, right? So the mm -hmm. first step is recognizing that what goes on and through your head is a function of habit, conditioning, uh, your experiences, obviously, a lot of factors you don't even know about, your amazing internal cellular communication, most people have no clue about, uh, that is mind-blowing. Uh, it's a lot of stuff. And so you have to recognize with some humility that the stuff that pops up into my head is just based on past experience. I could see things differently. And that's important, you know, so I don't have to have the same depressing thoughts or I don't have to always be anxious or obsessive or whatever it is. I have that ability. And I think that's a huge ability that's tied in to everything that we have talked about. It's interesting. We um, have interviewed Annie Duke a number of times and she's become a friend and she taught us a different thing that I think relates into this is this idea of thinking in probable probabilities. So this idea that our beliefs, if we start to go, because we tend to go, it's either black or white. There, There isn't that shade of gray. But if we right. start to say, oh, yeah, this belief, I'm 90, even if you're 99.9% .9 sure, there's at least that little part. And then you can go, if, if information comes at you that is different, that says, that's not it. It's not saying that your belief is wrong. It's just saying, I'm now adjusting the percentages. So now it's 99% or 98% that I believe this. And it's much more likely that you can modify that belief if you take that approach. And it's been something that Tim and I have actually called each other out on, and it's been really powerful for us. So Kurt calls me out more commonly than I call Kurt out, but uh, that's because I'm the one that's making more mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good you've got each other to call each other out, but that absolutely is true. Um, there's a, uh, a great line that I use in that book from a st British statistician called George Box, who talks about uh, scientific models and theories. All models are wrong. Mm. Some are useful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to thinking about our thinking. All of it's somewhat wrong, but hey, some of it's useful. And that probability is so important. I use an example in that. And for example, you go to the doctor. You've got a nasty disease, and the doctor says, prognosis is you're going to die within five years. Well, the data says 92% of people die within five years. Okay. Yeah. But what about the 8% who don't? Yeah, what about yeah. the 1% who survived 20 years? But that's not typically how it's presented. And if you believe that you're going to die in five years, guess what? You probably will. So, again, this notion of probabilities is so huge 
again, it, it underpins so much misinformation. Oh, masks don't. If masks worked, we wouldn't have a problem. No, it isn't that masks cure viruses. They reduce the probability of infection by whatever percent it is, right? Yeah. And, and again, people are looking for certainty and 100% fact and truth. And most of the time, it's a probability. But I certainly like your idea of calling people out when, you know, you're looking that as an all or nothing in a binary way. And binary thinking is the curse, really. And you're looking at it in a binary way when we should be looking at it in a much more expansive way. Yeah. I just wanted to uh, remind listeners, we are talking to Howard Rankin about I Think, Therefore I Am, uh, a recent book. Therefore I Am Wrong. Therefore, I am wrong. Oh, I, I, See, you were wrong about that, Tim. See, you, you were you, thinking, you, and Kurt. therefore, you were wrong. Thank you, Kurt. Oh my gosh, I think therefore I am wrong. Talk about talk about uh, biases in my own mind of what you know when I'm thinking about Descartes. Yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> Howard, thank you. Pardon me for for flubbing the the title of the book. Um, I I love that you you criticize the number of books on the market that are about the what to think and not about how to think. I, I really I really love this. And I was wondering if you could spend just a minute talking about sort of the difference and then what makes your approach on how to think uh, different or better. Well, I, you know, I think, you know, the cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive therapy has sort of evolved into, for a lot of people, telling people, oh, you shouldn't think that. You, you know, you shouldn't think that of yourself. You're much better than that. You should think this. I don't know how helpful that really is. First of all, people are stuck in it. It would be much better, I think, to explain what we've been talking about, how your consciousness has been conditioned. This is a conditioned thought, and you need to understand how the thinking process works. And just because it's there doesn't make it right. Mm. So you have to become more aware of your consciousness and then you can put things in a much better perspective, right? And, you know, the fact is, um, you know, you think you're an idiot, and the fact is you are most of the time, but not all the time, okay? Um, well, Tim <laughs> Tim might be all of the time. I, I'm just 99% of the time, so there we go. Ah, I'm joking. But I do think it would be much more helpful to have the sort of discussion we've been having about consciousness and what is thinking rather than say, oh, why do you think that? You should think this. I want you to think this. That, you know, that's going to a very, 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 very specific thing rather than the process in general. Yeah, I think the education that we've had and that I think continues to be done in schools is more of that. This is what to think as opposed to this is how to think. You look at a test, you look at how people get graded. It is about knowing the facts. It is about answering this question correctly. It isn't about the process that goes into answering that question. And I think you can do a lot if you were to change that model. If you were to think about the process of thinking and the process of decision-making and the process of how our behaviors are are done as opposed to just what the outcome is. Any thoughts on how that can be done? <laughs> and I've got a good, a good personal experience of that from my time in high school, where in junior senior year um, I did history uh, as you know one of the what's called advanced level national tests. And there were two history teachers at our school. The guy I had just told you wanted you to remember the dates, the facts. Yeah, when was this battle? What happened? The other guy wasn't really into that at all. He wanted to take you back in time to what it was be like. Mm. Okay? And I didn't understand this till later. And so they would sometimes switch, you know, marking each other's papers. So he, the real historian, you get something back from him like, A, you got all the answers right, but you'll never be a historian. Okay? Because <laughs> wow. all you're doing is just repeating facts that honestly have no context, no real meaning for you. It's just the rep repetition of facts. And that to me is we know that education, effective education, is about engagement, is about understanding the meaning. It is not about repeating facts. 
But that's unfortunately the, bureau, the bureaucratic way education has evolved, you know, over and it's it needs to change big time. Well, it goes, Tim and I both do a fair amount of work with organizations and oftentimes it's around incentives or various different things. And one of the big issues that we encounter is that they need to measure something and they need to measure something typically that's quantifiable because otherwise it's not fair and people will be, you know, it's all subjective. And yet, if you looked at the performance, yeah, you can find those objective, quantifiable measures, but it isn't necessarily the thing that you really want to measure and that you want your employees to be doing. What you want them to be doing is doing these other things. You just can't measure it. And I think that's part of education is how do you assign somebody a grade if you're just teaching them how to think and how do you measure that? process at the end because it's not easy. So I think there's a big piece that goes along with that. Oh, clearly the challenge of standardizing outcomes is is a massive problem. But but I think with some creativity, you could do that. I mean, you know, on the history test, you don't just have to ask when was the battle and so forth. You might ask, what do you think it would be was like in that battle? Mm. And you could measure how many ideas somebody gave or, you know, how creative they were or what have you, which would be a measure of their real engagement and understanding rather than just, you know, checking off a fact. And it was interesting in practice, if I had a, somebody that I saw who was of school age and it could be first grade to undergraduate work, I would ask them, what's your favorite subject? And a lot of the time, they would come back with the same answer. And it was not a subject, and it wasn't recess. And I asked this at a think tank at the Yale School of Education, and they didn't get it either, so don't worry. So what did most of these kids, students say? I would, I don't know, reading. The subject taught by my favorite teacher. Favorite teacher engages you engage you. Oh, make it interesting. Oh, this is fun. This is great. And we don't, from a neuroscience point of view, what's going on in your brain, you know, when you're, when you're excited and, and, and all of that, then your, your attention goes up, your ability, your memory improves, your engage, your motivation improves, all of that. But if you're just sitting at the back of a class, you know, looking out the window and somebody's droning on and it's boring, you're not engaged. You're not interested. Why should you be? Really? And it's, it's the teacher's job to engage you, but that's a challenge also. I have to admit that there was something that engaged me just because it made me laugh. The Rankin's theory of relatives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. that when family members come to stay, space shortens and time lengthens. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> sounds, sounds all too familiar, not to, not to draw too, too fine a point on it, but did this come from uh, personal observations or was there a scientific study that you conducted to come? No, to I didn't <laughs> conduct a scientific study. Uh, it was sort of mostly anecdotal evidence <laughs> and uh, a moment of thinking about Einstein and <laughs> just changing changing the context. <laughs> uh, I, I love that. Um, Kurt, uh, I'm, are you... Are you I'm leaving? looking at you because I know it's about that the yes. time for music. Yes. And yes. I know yes. you want to be asking Howard a, a question here or two that's going to just take him in a whole different line of thought. I hope so. I hope so. So uh, you you met Mary in advance of uh, our discussion today, and uh, you know she lives in in the UK and has informed us about Desert Island Discs. Ah. And, right. So we want to we're modifying that a little bit. But imagine that you were on a desert island for a year. What three artists would you take with you on that desert island for a year? Mm. Ooh, that's a very good question. And I, when I say artists, and, and by the way, a mu- musician. No, no, I realize that. Uh, and could this span the uh, centuries? Yeah. Yes, Anything. Yes. It's their it's their music. Their so works. you're not actually going to take them personally. <laughs> no, 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 I realize. So I'm on this desert island, so I've got three choices. So I'd actually choose things that represent different uh, modes. So I would have classical music, so probably Mozart. Okay. You know, I'd bring some Mozart with me. I, I'd have to take the Beatles with me. 
Sorry, guys. Um, (laughs) I did see them. No apologies. I I do have a Beatles story, if you're interested. Where I lived in London, where I grew up, near Wembley, the big soccer stadium, which was great for a sports-loving kid. They also had a studio that every Friday night did a music show, a live music show. And I saw a lot of the bands of the 60s and 70s, you know, walking around, outside just to get to the show you know it was fun and one time i saw this psychedelic car parked outside a local chinese restaurant and i looked in and there were the beatles having (laughs) having a meal after their presentation it was john lennon's john uh, lennon's psychedelic Psychedelic rolls Mm -hmm. oh my gosh oh my gosh okay that's that's fantastic okay so we We'd have to take the Beatles. We've got Mozart, the Beatles. What would be your third? And probably um, a rapper. Now, I don't, I don't mean a paper rapper, and I don't actually mean any particular rapper, but I like rap. In fact, uh, I, I have on my YouTube channel a rap about vaccine hesitancy. Um, <laughs> Great. It's sort of a poem, but, you know, rap is poetry. So I kind of like the, I don't use curse words in it, but, but I like the sort of creative poetry rhythm of rap. So there you go, Mozart, Beatles, and rap. Well, I like that is probably a wide, the widest diverse mix of musical genres <laughs> that we have had for, for that question. Yeah. So. It's interesting. My maternal grandmother was a... a musician was a tremendous pianist and she actually played in a quartet in a famous hotel in Bournemouth which is one of the resorts in England in the 1920s oh my god and she met some amazing people like Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> it is amazing. And she was incredible. Later in life, I could, she'd say, oh, give me a song. And I could hum a Beatles song that she'd never heard. And off she'd go and she'd play it. It was incredible. Incredible. I love that. Mm. I love that facility. That oh uh, my gosh, you know, that uh, ability to to do that. Uh, you you quoted Jimi Hendrix in Intuitive Rationality. Yes. Oh no. In yes, Intuitive Rationality. Yes. Yeah. You said knowledge speaks, but wisdom listens. Mm. Are you a Jim- Hendrix fan? Um, I was. I was growing up, um, and uh, yeah, I was. And that was interesting because in Intuitive Rationality, which is sort of about this topic and cognitive bias and, and the marrying of our intuition and these heuristics with logic, which I think has to, you know, you have to do. Um, and it was fun because I used Sherlock Holmes as an example. And mm. uh, he was quoting, he quoted that line. And so in this part of the book i had to guess who that was and you know i'm guessing aristotle or buddha or whatever and it turns out to be Jimi hendrix um, <laughs> which, which is a nice nice way of reminding yourself that hey even even people can be even even musicians can be philosophers right? wise amazing people yeah, yeah absolutely ab- ab- absolutely lastly just to, to, to kind of close the music question do you listen to music while you write no I don't typically. I mean, I love listening to music. I listen to music typically when I'm walking or jogging. So I find that. And I find walking and jogging actually very, I live in a beautiful spot. There's a lot of natural. There's a beach. It's, you know, it's gorgeous. I find it very, I've had some great, you know, some of my best ideas doing that. And so, but I typically listen when I'm I'm walking to a variety of different things. And music does have an amazing impact on the brain and your mind. And so, you know, we we're talking earlier about different ways of getting outside your yourself or your conditioned self, and music definitely is one way of doing that. Absolutely. Howard, thank you for being a guest on Behavior Grooves. How can listeners get a hold of you? I have a YouTube channel under the name Howard Rankin. I do have a, a, a website. I have several, but I have drhowardjrankin.com. Uh, where you can reach out to me. So that would be the the easiest place to do it. I also have, I think, therefore I'm wrong.com, which looks at 
the thing, which looks at the book and the various things we're doing. And I also have the How Not to Think podcast, uh, which is on most platforms and um, will be appearing more and more on YouTube, snippets on YouTube. Fantastic. Well, Howard, again, thank you. And we appreciate you being here. Well, I appreciate you guys. Uh, it's just awesome. Thank you so much. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Howard, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our definitely wrong brains. Yeah, that's perfectly said. Because we think, and therefore we're wrong. We think, <laughs> right. Uh, that, that, that's so true. And we like to believe that we are right. And that's... Well, Therein well, lies the we problem. We are right. You and I oh, are definitely okay. right. You know, it's everybody else that's wrong. We 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 understand how this works. No, but that's but that's true. I mean, isn't it? It's funny how we, you know, it's that fundamental attribution error uh, to a certain degree, right? It's yeah. that oh, I have to be right, and we know that everybody else it falls prey to this. This whole idea of of our own certainty of of who we are and our beliefs and our our ideas, and I think that's a that's a big problem. And I think it's a big problem with, with, I think what Howard was talking about here too, this idea that we like certainty, you know, yeah. this idea that we want to be certain about our own beliefs and our certain, our own pieces of that. So. Yeah. Uh, it reminds me of the flat earther guy who goes up in a, in a plane with a, um, you know, what's, what's the tool to, to identify whether something is level, a level. Right? Oh. <laughs> and so we got a level on the plane and he, he sits the level down on the plane and says, see, we are going completely flat. This is a perfectly <laughs> flat plane. So the earth cannot be round because if, if it were round, then we would be either going up or down. And it's like, so, you know, this is my, this is my knowledge base. This is, this is my certainty. And it's like, Oh God, that's just bad thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, that, and that I think is the, what we have seen from all of these series that we've done this month, right. Is bad thinking. It's thinking that builds upon either really limited and, and kind of shaky evidence. And we build that up as a temple. It's faulty logic in this. Or it's just downright stupidity, you know, to, to a certain degree in, in how we think it, right? This idea of crazy, unfactual pieces of putting microchips into vaccines. You think about that. Just think about that. A, why, what is that going to do? Think about the level of technology that we have. Think about the cost that that would be. Think about how many people would be involved in that. I mean, just the faulty logic through all of that just drives me bonkers. And I think it's just stupid thinking. So there you go. <laughs> well, I love that Andy Norman earlier this month introduced us to the idea that there are bad ideas. Yes. Like, let, not everything is relative. Some, some, it's not just that some ideas are worse and some ideas are, are better, but there are bad ideas. And I think that that's <laughs> just important. And, and that, that kind of gets into this critical thinking discussion yeah. uh, that, that Howard brings up. He kind of focused on numeracy and understanding how compounding works, but I wonder if it's bigger than that. I wonder Whoa. if we're just lacking really, you know, good questioning and and good skepticism from time to time. I think that I think it's true. I, I don't want to get away from the numeracy because I think that's important. And I think what Kahneman and Tversky did some of the stuff too, or Tversky did with statisticians and like even having them do it. But just this idea of the million seconds is 11 and a half days. A billion seconds is what? 11,574 days or 31 over years. 31 years. Yeah. All right. So, so Tim, we talk about temporal discounting in some of our other conversations. <laughs> so I want to use that temporal as a temporal discounting thing. So would you wait, you know, a million seconds for, for a thousand dollars or would you wait a billion seconds for $10,000? There you go. You know, 10 times, 10 X, it's only 1 million to a billion. It's not that much more, right? There you go. But it's 36 years. It's 31, 31, 31.6 years. 31.6 years. Yeah. years. That's a long time to wait. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that our educational system is lacking right now. But a question that I have is, has it always been lacking? In other words, are we getting better, but just at a, 
at a slower rate than we would like to be getting better? Or did we once have a really sound educational system that was founded on good critical thinking and then that somehow left us? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know what previous education systems. When you were raised, do you think that you were taught these concepts of critical thinking or were you more of, I need to remember the dates of, you know, when the French Revolution was and the names of these players and the mathematical tables that we have? I think it was a bit of both. I think it was a bit of both. I was talking to a math teacher yesterday, actually, who suggested that students who are really bright and have advanced math skills need to learn more about the history of math to understand the development of how uh, geometry was developed by the Greeks and why they developed it and how algebra was developed by the by the Arabs and why that was developed to really understand sort of the philosophy behind it. And I thought, that's actually really cool to think about that. If you're really into math, that's a good way of getting deeper into the subject and to understand the foundations for it. But does that get into critical thinking, right? So understanding the history of something that you're interested in is one thing, but does that make you a better critical thinker? And it might, it might, because you see the process that they had to go through and the tribulations and the, the starts and misstarts and various different things. And you're going, oh, I see they were looking at this and then that didn't work. And so they got to look at this and that lends itself to bringing up some of those critical pieces. But I don't know if it always does that. I don't know if the actual process of critical thinking is being taught. Unlike, I think, what Annie Duke and her Alliance for Decision Education is focused on is really getting people to think about how they make decisions, to think about how they think, the meta piece of this, right? This Agreed. Which I think is, I think it's a lacking in our education system, but I think it's just lacking in our society in, a, in general is we don't think about how we think. We don't think about how these decisions are made and we don't understand, which is part of the thing, what we're trying to educate people on is that our thinking is often influenced by these unconscious or other factors that we're not even aware of. And so it's not always as accurate or correct as we would like it to be that, you know, we have this element where there's factors that come into play that are influencing how we think and how we decide. So if those factors are going to be there, the bigger problem that we can solve is to be aware of those factors and to acknowledge that our decision-making, that our thinking is going to be influenced by things that we're not aware of and, and to be sensitive to that. And, and the big the big fallacy is that people think, no, my decisions are sound. Yeah, I'm certain, right? The certainty piece that Howard brings up, this idea that, hey, you know what? I'm certain of my beliefs. You must be the one that is wrong. I'm certain of my thinking process. Because why why wouldn't we want to be certain about our thinking process? I don't want to think that my thinking process is wrong, that I am not a critical thinker, that I don't take into account all these other factors. But if I don't know them and I feel that, but we have this sense of certainty around our decisions. And I love this, I love Howard's thing about science, right? Where science uncovers truths bit by bit. Yeah, yeah. And there's something with today too, where that comes in, where also science goes down one thing and and we uncover something and then we have further data, further insight. And what we believe before now is changed. And so that is the piece where I I just, it boggles my mind when people go, but the scientists said X and see, now they say Y, how can you trust the scientists? I'm going, that's exactly why you should trust the scientists. That is the reason to trust the scientists because it was X from all the information, all of the research, all of the, the data that we had And now we have more better data or information or insight. And so now we're not sticking with X because we know better. And that is the beauty of science. Anyway, get off my high horse. Uh, No, that's a good high horse to be on. It also sounds like you're alluding to um, Bayesian thinking. Yes. Right. And the need to continue to uh, aggregate data, right? The, The more data we have, there might be a regression to the mean, 
but yeah. we'll understand the mean better. Yeah. Well, how how did you describe it? The the Bayesian thinking, the the baseball player. What was yeah, that? Yeah, the story? baseball player. I love that story. The baseball player comes up to bat on the very first day, very first at bat, hits the ball, and so instantly has a batting average of one thousand. A perfect, perfect. So this is the best baseball player ever, obviously, right? But then tomorrow in the next game, misses, you know, strikes out, no hits. And so now all of a sudden, this baseball player goes from having a batting average of 1,000 to a batting average of 500. Okay. That's still pretty good. Yeah. But at the end of the season, that particular player is probably a 325 player. 250, you know. Maybe 225 is pretty good. But so, yes, and this idea that, look, we need to update our thinking about and our hypothesis, our hypothesis based on new data as it comes in. And the more that we do that, the better that we are able to to think through that and the probabilities of things happening and all of that. I think that's fantastic. And we need to challenge the beliefs that it's it's hard to do that. But with new evidence and new information coming in, we need to challenge these pre-held beliefs that we have and the certainty that we have in holding them, which yeah. is difficult. It's hard. But Man, if I think we'd be a much better society and, and world in general if we were able to do that. So, well, and getting back to our educational system, maybe uh, if we adopted more of what Howard is recommending to to learn how to think rather than just what to think, right? There's mm. been, there's been this hue and cry about we're just teaching kids, you know, uh, historical dates and facts, but but maybe it needs to be more focused on stories and narratives yeah. to to try to help them learn how to think. That could create a whole generation of people that that might be better better learners, better students, um, and better critical thinkers. I love his concept of, of using stories, narratives to explain. Because again, we've evolved as people to be processing stories in a different way, to process yeah. narratives, and that's how we we learned and communicated. And so. That gets back to his part about numeracy and some of the other factors, which are, uh, yeah, they're part of our prefrontal lobe cognitive ability to think, but it's not necessarily how we tend to think. And so we have to put effort into it, whereas more of that story-based learning and different pieces and, and thinking through that help us really solidify that into, into our everyday life, because this is where it comes down to it. We can all sit down, put pencil to paper, and do a math problem, right? But it is in those moments when we have to make decisions on the fly that we don't take the time to put paper to pencil, pencil to paper. See, there you go. It's, you know. One you, of you, those two things, yeah. One of those two <laughs> things. How do you take paper to pencil? That'd be interesting. Anyway, take, put, put pencil to paper and, and figure that out. We make assumptions and we... We confuse a billion seconds with a million seconds or a billion, $10 billion cost with a, you know, a $50 million cost. And we go, oh, they're, they're equivalent. They're not. And we, we need to put that narrative, that story around saying 50 million does X, whereas 10 billion or 2 billion does Y. And it's, you know, 11 and a half days versus 31 years. Absolutely. It reminds me a little bit of the bike shed analogy about building a power plant that's going to have a bike shed and spending as much time designing the bike shed as the power plant. It's like, <laughs> we got to, we got to, got to fix that. One of the things that Howard said that I just thought was really cool uh, that got me thinking is about when he asked about, uh, are our favorite subjects also taught by our favorite teachers? Yeah. That's a cool question. And it's interesting because is it the subject or is it the teacher? And I would have to say it's the teacher, at least in my experience, right? It's like, I didn't like math until I had a really good teacher that taught me math. And then I got interested in math. And then that was the catalyst as opposed to, I love math. And then, oh, I think every teacher that teaches math is great. I think it's, it's definitely the teacher is the lead on that. So. Yeah. And, and so I, you think about that in our educational system, the implications are pretty big. If if students don't connect with their teachers, maybe there's no hope. I don't know. I don't know how dire uh-huh. it could be, but 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 it also leads me to think about music. Oh, music of course venues. it does. Of course it does, <laughs> Mr. Hulahan. See, see where I'm going here? 
First, no, I don't. Where are you going? You're, you're like, it thinks that you didn't think about music. So is your favorite teacher your music teacher? What is that? Where are you? No, I have a question for you. Okay. Is your favorite concert also your favorite concert venue? Like if you think about all, all the places that you've seen a concert and you, you were to pick your favorite concert venue, does it correlate with the place where you had your favorite concert? That's a tough question. That's an interesting question. So, so A, I hate stadium concerts, right? To this day, I mean, I've big stadium concerts, right? Because you're usually a mile away. The sound quality is often crap. And, you know, it's like you're just watching the big video screens. And I go, well, why don't I just do this at home outside, of, you know, whatever. However, my favorite concert was U2 at Carver Hawkeye Stadium Arena, which is in Iowa City back in 1997 um and this was indoors this is an indoor 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 concert and you know the bodines opened up and i was there with you know two of my friends and we the lights went down between the bodines and the and you two and we bum rushed the stage and we were up there like you know 10 feet 15 feet from the stage and it was awesome and you know just a fantastic concert fantastic thing and i'm I'm like on i never saw another concert there so I don't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that's my favorite concert arena, but I'm thinking about that. And as you say that, I'm going, oh, that's a pretty good place to see it because we were, you know, where we were. And I'm like, oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure there's a correlation there. And that was a long ass story just to get to. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a maybe answer on your, your yeah thing. There. Yeah. Yeah. For me too. I, you know, one of my, my very first concert, uh, was at the Mississippi River Festival in Carbondale, Illinois, at the University of Southern Illinois. And it was an outdoor amphitheater. And it was very memorable, uh, for, not just for the because it was my first concert, but it was great music that night. And I sat on a hash pipe and brought it home and showed my mom. And she's like, that's just beautiful. It was brass and fantastic. And she's like, that's beautiful. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to clean this up. I was 11 years old. (laughs) And and she she allowed me to clean up this hash pipe and, you know, put it on my dresser. There you go. I don't know how we got to drugs from from music. but (laughs) Drugs from music. It's not that big of a leap, Tim. You know, come on. Oh, my gosh. Well, all right. So (laughs) we'll leap from how to think to education to concert venues to drugs to thank you listeners for listening to our conversation with Howard and for listening to all of our conversations this past month on conspiracy thinking and conspiracy theories and and critical thinking and hopefully you enjoyed it hopefully you found some value in this some way to be able to talk with that crazy uncle and as we say it's always the crazy uncle or just ways of thinking about the people that hold these beliefs and maybe getting a better understanding of them and how they think and maybe you know being able to talk with them better uh, or understand them at least to a little degree so we appreciate that and as always we hope that you go out and make this a fantastic week and we hope that you find your group. 